He's been confident. He's been bold. And all of a sudden, he's terrified. The word troubled literally means depressed or hopeless. In a parallel account, it says that Jesus' sweat became like great drops of blood. He even says in the passage that he's sorrowful to the point of death. It doesn't mean that Jesus is suicidal. It literally means that he's so stressed out that the stress is killing him. And the question for us becomes, what changed? Why is he so stressed out? What's going on? Many people have ventured guesses to why he's so stressed out over the years. One argument is that Jesus is stressed out, anticipating the physical pain of the crucifixion. But what's interesting is, if you flip ahead just a little bit in the Gospel of Mark, there's actually very little description of the physical pain of crucifixion. That doesn't seem to be the main point. Some people have ventured the guess that he's so stressed out because he's anticipating the betrayal of his friends. After all, relational betrayal might at times be more painful even than physical pain. But I think where we find the true key to unlocking our understanding of what is stressing Jesus out is in Jesus' prayer to the Father. So Jesus prays to the Father, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And then he says, remove this cup from me. Immediately as I say that, that doesn't ring any bells for us as Western American people. But to a Jew who understood deeply the context of the Old Testament, it would have had deep meaning. They would have thought of passages like Isaiah 51, verse 17. Wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. So in an Old Testament context, this cup is referring to the cup of staggering, the cup of God's wrath. When people were disobedient to God, particularly in the Old Testament, God had a long wick, but when he poured out his wrath, it was terrible. And it was referred to as the cup of of his wrath or Jeremiah 25:15 says thus the lord the god of israel said to me take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom i send you drink it again he's referring to this cup as the cup of god's just anger against human sin. Like a good judge convicting a murderer and sentencing them to death. To look into the cup of God's wrath 
was to look at a death sentence handed down to you by God Almighty. So what we begin to see in this passage is that the pain that Jesus is experiencing is not in anticipation of some physical pain or in anticipation of betrayal, but it's a kind of invisible suffering. He is anticipating for the first time in eternity being cut off from his father. So imagine this. Jesus has been in perfect relationship with his heavenly father for eternity. When God has looked at Jesus, he has always said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And instead of looking at a father who loves him, for the first time, Jesus looks into the cup of God's wrath. And he begins to stagger. He begins to recoil. He begins to be deeply distressed and deeply troubled. Now, this is kind of hard for all of us to understand, I think, because all of us, to some degree, have experienced God's displeasure toward our sin. We were born separated from God. To some degree, experiencing God's wrath, whether it be in the consequences for our sin or in his displeasure towards something that we do, is part of this, this, this invisible air that we breathe. But for Jesus, it's totally different. Maybe it would be like going into an environment that you're not used to going into. So I remember one time, Melissa and I were doing a service project where we were going around in a poor neighborhood and we were handing out bags of food to people. And we walked into this one house in particular, and I'll never forget it. Even I was thinking about it in preparation for this. I was kind of taken back, just remembering the sights and the smells and everything like that. We walked into this woman's house. She was probably in her 70s or 80s. And her house was entirely bug infested. There were cockroaches and centipedes and disgusting bugs crawling literally on everything, on her bed sheets, on her food, on her cabinets, absolutely everywhere. And I just remember standing in that environment and almost being paralyzed. Like, this is crazy. It was so foreign to me to be in that environment. And I think Jesus is experiencing something similar to that. I know I'm reaching on this one, right? Because it's really hard to describe something like going from never experiencing God's wrath to now experiencing God's wrath. But he's walking into this completely foreign environment. He's looking into the cup of God's wrath. And the question becomes, why? Why would he do this? Did Jesus sin? Was there some reason that God sort of turned on him in this moment? And the answer that we get in Scripture is that Jesus is beginning to take on the wrath of God for you and for me. Jesus is staring into the cup that we deserve to drink. And so 
it's one thing to talk about God's wrath in sort of this theoretical way, like talk about it up here. But I want you to think about your lust, your pride, your anger, your neglecting of your relationship with God, your idolatry, prizing and prioritizing things above God in your life. That sin that's on your mind that you can't forget about. That thing that you feel guilty for this morning. Do you know the reason that we feel guilty for our sin? Because we are. And Jesus is not a God who brushes that sin under the rug. Instead, he takes responsibility for your sin and for my sin. And so what Jesus is offering us as he looks into the cup is he's saying, either you can suffer the consequences of your sin for eternity in hell, or I, the perfect son of God, will suffer the consequences of your sin for you. Amazing. Jesus faced the deep anguish of separation from God and being under his wrath for you and for me. That's the deep anguish of Jesus. It's difficult for us to understand. But I think that the betrayal that Jesus experiences by his friends is easier for us to understand because we've all experienced something like that. So let's secondly look at the betrayal of friends. I'm going to kind of contrast two different betrayals that happen in this passage, one by Judas and one by Peter. So I'm going to read about Judas first. Verses 44 through 46 again, it says, Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hand, hands on him and seized him. I mean, think about the evil of this moment. Judas has been walking with Jesus in close friendship for three years. They've shared time together. They've shared meals together. Most recently, they shared this super intimate meal together that we looked at a couple weeks ago called the Last Supper. And Judas walks up to Jesus even at the last moment under the pretense of being his friend. He's about to hand him over to be crucified. And he walks up to him and gives him the customary greeting of the day. Kisses him like nothing's even going on. How painful. Sometimes people who appear to be your friends are actually your enemies. Sometimes we have to watch out for people in our life who flatter us, who are only saying positive things because behind that veneer, behind that kiss, behind that smile, behind those words, is a heart 
that is actually in competition with us and is seeking our harm. That was the heart of Judas. He'd been stealing from Jesus. He'd been plotting. And this was simply the last step of his ultimate betrayal. We contrast that with another deeply painful episode in this passage, the betrayal of Peter. So Mark 14, 71 through 72 says, but he, that's Peter, began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time and Peter, remember how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times and he broke down and wept. Now, it's one thing for somebody who's pretending to be your friend to betray you, and for at the end of the day, you just be able to say, that person was never my friend at all. But it might be more painful to see someone who's truly your friend have a moment of weakness and betray you. Now, the difference between Peter and Judas is Judas' betrayal of Jesus was an absolute betrayal. He left and never came back. Peter's betrayal of Jesus was a momentary betrayal. And we see throughout the passage, it's almost kind of funny, isn't it? Like this big crowd of soldiers come and Peter pulls out a sword and cuts off one of the soldiers' ear and he's telling Jesus, I'm never going to leave you. Even though everybody else leaves you, I'm not going to leave you. And then he follows Jesus to this courtyard And he's watching the trial and this little girl asks him, do you know him? And somehow Jesus has, or Peter has boldness in front of these soldiers, but he has no courage in front of this girl. Do you know him? And three different times he denies even knowing Jesus. And what we often overlook, sometimes Peter takes the hit for everybody else. But every one of the disciples betrayed Jesus in his hour of greatest need. I think sometimes we can have that same attitude that Peter had, though, can't we? We can think, man, if I was there, I would have stood strong. There's no way I would have betrayed Jesus. But I think as we began to begin to examine ourselves, what we see in our own hearts is that we've all done this. We've all denied and betrayed Jesus. Sometimes without even really intending to do it. It was a few years ago, I became convicted of a specific friend of mine that over and over again, not by what I said, but actually by what I didn't say, I had denied Jesus in front of this friend. So this friend was on the golf team with me and he was the number one player on our team. I was the number two player on the team, which meant, We played golf together all the time. I literally was on a golf course with this guy like 20 hours a week. When you're on a golf course with somebody 20 hours a week, you have no excuse not to talk to them about Jesus. But I sidestepped the topic with him all the time. For some reason, it was just really hard for me to talk to this guy about Jesus. And so I was working at a church in Iowa a few years back, and I became convicted about this. I'm just like, I can't believe that that happened. I denied Jesus. I, I betrayed him. And so you know what I did? I called this dude up at work. 
Just in the middle of the day, I just called him. Hey, Mike, how's it going? Hey, Drew. I mean, I hadn't talked to this guy in five years. Super awkward, right? I'm just like, hey, I just want to apologize to you for something. I said, for three years of my life, I spent every day with you. And I never talked to you about what was most important to me. Will you forgive me? You know what he said? Man, thanks for calling. It's crazy. It was almost like this moment of pause for him where he's just like, I can't believe this is happening right now. And I didn't feel like a victorious, like, I did it after that. I was like, I hung up the phone. Like, what did I just do? I can't believe I just called him. That was crazy, you know. Um, but maybe there's somebody in your life that you have effectively, effectively betrayed Jesus in front of. And you just need to have a similar conversation. You need to prioritize your relationship with Jesus over pleasing other people. Maybe it's somebody at work. Maybe you sidestep the conversation. Maybe it's not so much about something that you did, but it's about what you have not been doing. What's so crazy is we know the end of the story. Jesus does not shame Peter for this. He doesn't rub it in his face, and he doesn't even take on sort of a victim mentality that we would take on. Like, I can't believe you betrayed me. This is unbelievable. The next interaction that Jesus has with Peter, he makes him a meal. He welcomes him back into friendship with him. And if we'll just come back to Jesus and say, you know, I'm sorry, I've been a bad friend, we can be guaranteed that Jesus will welcome us back into friendship with him. Why is this? Why can Jesus have this perspective? When he goes through this deep anguish and suffering and this personal betrayal, these things that we can hardly even imagine that would cause us likely to walk away from God, how can he go through with such courage? How can he face God and say, not my will, but your will be done at the end of the day? It's because he understands that he didn't ultimately die at the hands of Judas or because of Peter's betrayal or because of Roman soldiers. He understood that he was squarely in the middle of God's plan. Lastly, we're going to look at the plan of God. Remember Mark 14, verse 36. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. See, even in the garden, Jesus understood that his life was according to plan. Even the staggering, even the sweating drops of blood, even the betrayal of his friends, even the Roman soldiers, even Judas, all of those things were under the control of God. Don't think of Jesus as a victim. Jesus is not a victim. Jesus knows what's coming and he is walking directly into it. That's why he's so stressed out. Let me give you a couple examples of this. Mark 14, verse 30. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. He anticipates Peter's denial of him. He knows that it's coming. He knows it down to the very 
detail of it. Another example, Mark 14, 41 through 42. And he came the third time and said to them, are you sleeping and taking rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The son of man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Judas, the soldiers, no one's there yet. But Jesus knows that they're coming. He knows that the cross is coming. He knows that the resurrection is coming. He knows that the flogging is coming. He knows every detail of it. He knows that he's walking in the center of God's plan, which is why we said at the beginning that his deep anguish and his personal betrayal is all part of God's plan. And the book of Acts makes this abundantly clear. As the disciples and the early church sort of reflect back on these events, here's their perspective. This is crazy. Acts chapter 4, verses 27 through 28 say this. This is a prayer. <clears throat> For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy, holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So according to the early church, the ultimate reason that these events are transpiring in the life of Jesus is because it was all pre-planned by God. It's all part of the story. It's all part of the script. Now, the immediate question comes to our mind, well, if it's all part of the script, then aren't people just robots and what they do doesn't really matter and no one can be held responsible or something like that? That is not the argument of the Bible. The argument of the Bible is that those two things in a paradox can coexist. God can be absolutely sovereign and in control of everything, and people are still responsible for their actions. Let me try to illustrate this for you. Okay, my son Luke just started soccer. All right, so every week... My wife and I have the responsibility of getting Luke and all of our other kids to soccer practice and then getting them all home without anyone dying, which might sound easy, but it's not. It's difficult, especially you got to park in the parking lot. You got to walk on this long path. We've got kids that were taken there ranging from age two to age eight. And so it's tough. But here's the thing. I'm in control. I'm bigger, I'm stronger, I'm faster than all my kids. And so here's what can happen. I can have this plan. We're all going to get in the van. We're all going to drive to soccer practice. We're going to park. All you guys are going to get out of the van. We're going to watch soccer practice. We're going to get back in the van. We're going to come home. You guys are all going to go to bed. And then you're going to come out of your rooms a bunch. And then we're going to go to sleep. Okay, but here's what's true. That's on one level, right? On one level, there's dad's plan. There's going to be a lot of things going crazy. Like my, I know that within that plan, my two-year-old son is just going to take off running at some point, and I'm going to have to chase him down. I know that my twin girls are going to get in a fight somewhere along the way. There's going to be screaming that's going to be happening at some point in my ear. I know that I'm going to watch soccer and that that's going to happen, but that does not affect the plan. 
Right? The plan is going to happen. We go to soccer, we're going to come home. It's going to happen. In a similar way, God can be executing his plan, and yet people within that plan can be fully responsible for their actions. So when, I, when, when I'm saying that God is sovereign, that he's in control, that he's working the plan, don't hear me say that the people are now robots. Hear me say, he's got this, he's in control. Here's why it's really important for us to understand this. Because the reason that this passage is written is for you. It's because right now in your own life, you are experiencing personal betrayal. Deep anguish. And you have to know two things. You have to know that Jesus is with you. Do you see Jesus in the garden? Do you see that he's not detached? Do you see that he understands what it looks like to be hopeless? That he understands what it looks like to be depressed? That he understands what it feels like to experience the consequences of sin. That he knows what it's like to feel so ashamed of something that it makes you stand staggering and fall to your knees. He understands what you're going through. He doesn't just understand. He went from heaven to earth to show you and he's with you. You'll talk to other people about your suffering and your sin and whatever, and you always leave that conversation feeling like that person doesn't fully understand what I'm going through. But there is a person who fully understands what you're going through because before you were even born, he bore your sin in his body. He stared into the cup. He's with you. But it's not enough, is it? to just know that somebody's with you. You've got to know that they're powerful enough to do something about it. And God has a plan for your pain, for your suffering, for your betrayal, for your relational brokenness. He is working everything for good. Which is why This prayer that Jesus prayed is so important to be on our lips continually. Because when we know that Jesus cares about us, we can go to him with all of our problems. But when we know God is working his plan for our good and that we don't always understand that, we can say, not my will, but your will be done. So that's my encouragement to you this week. See that Jesus is not distant from your pain. He's right there with you in it. He loves you. He cares for you. He'll never leave you or forsake you. And he has a plan even when we don't understand it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for not only coming to the earth, but for being tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin, for facing the consequences of our brokenness, for not taking on 
a victim mentality, but instead taking responsibility for the sins of the world on your shoulders. Jesus, we are humbled, we are encouraged, and we're staggered by what you did for us. We just want to say thank you. And we want to say in the midst of our pain, not my will, but your will be done. Jesus, if you can experience this kind of anguish, this kind of pain, this kind of betrayal, and come out on the other side, resurrected with new life, loving us, we believe that the same can be true of us that this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In Jesus' name, amen.